Uh, so uh, good morning. You know, this this space is unlike, I guess, any we've ever done. Uh, we say this a lot, but you know, this is, uh, I suppose, the most important CPI thus far. Uh, we've spoken a lot about the consequences of the Fed's decisions in these spaces, and well, now we kind of see them. Uh, uh, after the last few days. So I want to welcome everyone for starting their morning with us and say hi, I'm Unusual Wales. Uh, grab a coffee or tea. Uh, we have tons to discuss and I'm happy to have Nicholas uh, help lead the conversation. So Nicholas, if you can. Good morning, everyone. Excited as always to have these great macro speakers here with us. As those who frequent these spaces know, I really like to keep these panels very open for discussion. So as we go, all panelists, please feel free to discuss openly, add your thoughts to any given topic. Introductions here, please feel free to plug anything you want, anything you're working on, and we'll pin that up to the top of the space. As a speaker, you should be able to share that there as well, so please feel free. So I'm just going to work our way here through the introductions while we await our other speakers to be able to get in here. So starting us off here, we've got Jam Croissant. Jam Croissant, a leading volatility expert, a frequenter to the Unusual Whale space, and I like to consider a friend. He's the founder of Kai Volatility, which you should be subscribed to. He's an incredibly passionate educator in the options vol and flow space and was recently on CNBC. Welcome, Jam. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, guys. Uh, interesting times. Uh, how, how quickly things change. Uh, looking forward to chatting with all the great uh, speakers here today. Looking forward to it as well. A lot to learn from all of you guys. Next, we've got Randy Woodward, a bond investor for 30 years, was working at Bloomberg from 1988 to 95. He's a second timer to our unusual spaces and a great follower for all things macro. Welcome, Randy. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> yes, I've been covering banks uh, for pretty much my entire career. So that's kind of why I'm on here is I'm, I'm probably more the end banks part than I am the CPI part, but hopefully I can shed some light on some misconceptions out there when we get around to it. Excited to hear all that, Randy. Thanks for coming. Next, we've got the last bear standing, another friend of the unusual whale spaces. Last bear is an expert on numerous things and writes about the market, economy, and monetary policy in his weekly Substack, where he details the subtleties often forgotten in macro. If you're not subscribed, go do that now, please. Welcome back, last bear standing. Thanks, guys. I'm uh, looking forward to this spaces. Obviously, there's a lot of a lot of really interesting stuff going on. So um, and we have a great panel here to talk about it. So I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Up next, we've got Ben Hunt, a friend of the Unusual Whales community. Ben Hunt is the founder of Epsilon Theory, which, among many things, hosts wonderful newsletters you should already be subscribed to. Seriously. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here again. Looking forward to the talk. Looking forward to hearing from you. So we're still having some connection issues for Joseph, but I'm going to give him an introduction anyway. There might be no better person in the world to walk us through what just happened this weekend. We want to welcome back Joseph Wang, our go-to Fed guy. He headed the trading at the Fed's open desk, has an incredible book called Central Banking 101. If you haven't read that, definitely a great read. 
and he's the CIO at Monetary Macro. So we'll get him up here to say his piece as soon as we're able to, fighting with Twitter spaces per usual here, but we'll get it going. So, all right, let's jump right in here while we're waiting on that. I just want to give a brief overview here with an introduction. So before we even really talk about CPI, I really just want this to be an open panel because so much has changed. Mohamed Alarian said, we are now in a different world. And I just want to start off with the panel, open to anyone. How are you feeling after this weekend and the last three absolutely wild market days? Please, anybody, feel free to chime in. I'm happy to go first. If you if you want me to, Nick, I mean, I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this is like... Um, you know the bad old days I remember from 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 '08, um, where you're wait, waiting to hear what the Fed's going to say on a you know on a Sunday afternoon before Asia opens. So um, wouldn't wish it on anyone, but here we are, and uh, we 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 have to we have to deal with what we've got. I you know I I want to kind of start off. With this, and I, I mean, I, I invite the other speakers to similarly do this, or or not. I, I mean, I, I don't mean to put pressure on this, but I I want to start off by saying what my financial interests are and are not in the banks, because I've been so I've been so bummed out, <laughs> particularly on Twitter, by the level of I'll call them motivated opinions. Uh, that, you know, we always get on this site, but I think have been, you know, even more so than ever over the past five or six days. You know, the the, the level of bad hot takes, you know, are just staggering. Um, but but I think it's important maybe for all of us to say, look, I've, I've got no positions, long or short, in any financial, not in our fund, not personal accounts, nothing. I am personally a client of Bank of America and a little regional bank here in Connecticut, Fairfield County Bank. Our company is a client of J.P. Morgan, UBS, and First Republic. So that's it. And I, and I, and I just think it's important to, 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 to state all that really clearly, because like I say, just the the level of motivated opinions I've seen on Twitter over the last five or six days are just staggering. I'm, I'm really disappointed in a lot of people. I'm angry even. And uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I decided to do this, this unusual whale space because it's, you guys are great. But frankly, I'm, I'm going to take a, a, a Twitter break after this. I just, um, the tax is too much to kind of wade through, through all this stuff. So anyway, that's that's where I wanted to start with this. Thank you, Ben. A lot in there, and I'm just I'm excited for the panel as I always am. It this group of folks, really priceless information. Uh, does anybody else have anything to add to what Ben was saying so far? Uh, hey, Nick, you mind if I jump in for a minute here? Yeah, please do. Um, I totally agree with Ben. I want to shoot myself in the face every day on Twitter because the level of ignorance. I actually, I don't, I don't think I should even call it ignorance. It's just, you know, 
not understanding banking, not understanding what they just went over the last three years, not understanding really community banking. What drives me nuts is everybody compares it to JP Morgan. JP Morgan's not a bank. It's a conglomerate. They've got many, many businesses, many different ways to make money. Um, they can weather a lot of storms that community banks can. And what I want to explain here and my motivation is to try to tell everyone, how did we get here? So for instance, this morning I wake up, which this is something I try to avoid in my life in general, but unfortunately I saw a tweet from Jim Grammer that said, these are not bailouts. Uh, they are a way without taxpayer money, which I'm not really sure that's true either, to remove the risk of those banks that invested poorly. That's just, it's such a moronic statement. It's just so un- ill-informed. Um, we can just take the uh, AFS portfolio, which we need to talk about AFS HDM because no one understands that either. But we can just talk about that portfolio that uh, Silicon Valley had to sell uh, was had a underlying yield of 179 and a 3.6 year duration. And they had to take a $1.8 billion loss on that. Um, that's a very conservative por- part of their portfolio. And there's still a very significant loss there for no other reason than these are the kind of investments that banks were forced into by the Fed and, and, and by the government as well when they went parabolic with uh, PPP loans and stimulus and whatnot. So I'll, I'll give you the short of it, and then I'll, I'll shut up and we can go from there. But generally, March 20, uh, 2020 to essentially March 2022, the Fed put their foot on rates to zero bound, and they put their foot on the throat of mortgage-backed securities. So they brought all those yields down to historic lows. At the same time, okay, at the same time, the Fed is flooding essentially the banks with deposits. So banks are having to invest in an environment with all those new deposits. They're forced in. There's nowhere else to go to get yield. Everything they had on their books is being refinanced. I believe now uh, 80% of all mortgages in the United States either were created or refinanced during that period of time of the lowest rates ever. Okay. And then you turn around and you raise rates 400 basis points at the fastest pace ever. And all that stuff that they bought, which is good collateral, which is treasuries and probably more so mostly agency, more securities and whatnot, they're all at a massive loss for no other reason than this massive Fed manipulation. The Fed created this and now they got a problem and it's not going away. And no matter what facility they put in there, the problem still exists and they're probably going to have to fix it. So that's I'll leave it there for right now. Thank you, Randy. So I, I do want to kind of pivot the conversation here and give a little bit more backdrop before the next question. So one of the one of the dominating questions I would say across FinTwit, across the financial world here is how did we get here? So to that end, let me do a quick summarization. Everyone knows the quotation that there are decades when nothing happens and weeks when decades happen. Since Thursday of last week, as you and many of you listening know, Three U.S. banks have collapsed with Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank making the second and third largest bank collapses of all time. So last week, due to job numbers, people were expecting a 50 BPS increase, but now there's debates of zero. The Fed has created emergency procedures to backstop these regional banks. 
Now, Jem, how are you feeling given all of this? I'm going to have a slightly different take uh, than some of the other uh, people on here today. Um, I think the Fed's been looking uh, for an excuse to pause and to take a look for some time. Um, I think uh, that said, uh, they have they've had to uh, continue to raise rates um, uh, almost as a political mandate, as a, you know, as a mandate to, to their charter. Um, that said, I think the thing they've wanted most of all is for speculation in markets and for some of the froth in markets uh, to come out. Uh, the idea of saying, hey, we're going to pause uh, has led to a almost 20%, led to an almost 20% rally off the market bottom. And economic activity as a result, which is what they're trying to, in theory, not to say that they can, but in theory control cyclically, has been, um, uh, has been quite strong. And so <clears throat> how do they control <clears throat> CPI through the, uh, through the wealth effect, uh, first and foremost? And so I think uh, this is going to allow the Fed to pause <clears throat> and take a look around. Uh, they have raised rates, um, you know, 5% almost. Um, and, uh, and it has been very quick. Um, so um, I would argue that, that the kind of the liquidation in markets, not that it's been that dramatic yet, um, is, uh, you know, as long as it is controlled to, to a great extent, which to a great extent it has been, um, is, is exactly what the Fed wants right now um, and, and is hoping for. Now, I don't think long-term it's going to matter. I think a lot of people have tuned into my thoughts here. I think the Fed, you know, will, will know what I, what I always say. Uh, you know, the Fed is, really has the wrong tools to solve the structural problem at, head, at hand. They're, they're uh, dealing with structural problems uh, with cyclical tools. Uh, but we can get into that later. But I, I do think that's an important point. I think it's important to step back, look from 30,000 feet, where we've been, what the Fed uh, you know, has been saying, what has been happening, and, and what the net result is here. Thank you, Jim. Now I'm going to spin this over to you, Last Bear. You wrote a great piece called Too Big to Fail. Last Bear, care to walk us through what happened this week, if that's even really possible, and expand on what other speakers have said so far? Yeah, sure. I think um, in, in the post, which was an interesting time post, um, given all that's happened in the days following publishing, but um, the, the core of, of what I was writing was really arguing that there wasn't a systematic risk in banks. Um, and I still believe that despite everything that happened with Silicon Valley Bank, uh, Signature Bank, and um, uh, sorry, uh, Silvergate, that um, that they're really that that some of the ideas of a large bank uh, bank run or sort of systematic bank crisis have been really overblown, um, and that there's a really unique you know situation with these three banks, um, two of them obviously being the the two that have embraced um, crypto and uh, have sort of dealt with the fallout from from those decisions and Silicon Valley, which obviously was uh, the beneficiary of VC funding and a huge amount of deposit inflows over the past couple of years, as well as having a uniquely exposed asset base um, when, it, when it comes to where they put their assets into long duration securities. Um, and if you look across the banking sector um, more broadly, 
uh, we're just not in anywhere the same position as we were in 2008. If you look at the liquidity positions broadly of, of large banks, um, there's really no pressure on the large money center banks um, in the way that there was previously. And so um, it, from my perspective, I think that, that these um, issues really were more idiosyncratic than I think they've been uh, made out to be over the past several days. Um, and I think that a lot of the, uh, the, the knee-jerk reaction was, was really that. Um, and a lot of, I think, to, to the point that, uh, that other commenters have, have made, um, a lot of uh, panicking by people who have vested interests in seeing, for example, depositors be fully um, you know, fully backstopped on, on Monday. So um, I think that the actions, but I, I do think sort of more broadly speaking, what this past weekend puts into perspective really clearly is where the Fed, you know, what their priorities actually are when it comes to, when push comes to shove and they have to choose. So if you think about the fact that inflation was, was way above target for a long time, um, before the Fed was even talking about raising rates, stopping QE, anything like that. And they were sort of eventually forced into doing that once inflation didn't go away after months and months. Um, whereas a financial stability concern such as this causes basically the, the Fed to sort of rewrite the entire um, deposit insurance <laughs> regime um, and create new emergency lending facilities for banks in the course of 48 hours. So um, I do think it highlights you know, when push comes to shoves, that financial stability clearly is, um, you know, maybe top of list from the Fed's perspective. And I do think that that will have um, a, a great bearing on, on how they sort of establish policy going forward. Thank you, Last Bear. Ben, I see you have your hand up and I saw Benjamin did as well. Let's go Ben Hunt and then to Benjamin here. Yeah, thanks. Look, I I, I have to disagree about the, the notion that this a risk of a bank run and sy systemic problem was overblown. It was not overblown. It, it, it still isn't overblown. Look, every small to medium enterprise, every high net worth individual in this country has an uninsured deposit account. Right? They ju we, we, do, we just do. You can't run a business with 250K in a you know, demand deposit account. You, you, you can't do it. Now, if you've got your account at a, at a GSIB, right, if you've got it at a money center bank, you don't worry about it because those deposits are effectively guaranteed at any amount. Those banks cannot be placed into receivership. It, we, we already have an unlimited deposit guarantee system set up for the two big to fail banks for J.P. Morgan, for Citi, for B of A, for Wells, I guess, right? It's everybody else that is still under this old system. And that's why this is very different from any bank failure we've had before. So look, I, I get it, right? So much of Silicon Valley Bank was bullshit. I get that. Stipulated. But, and, to Randy's point, they weren't making bad loans, Right, this isn't 08 where you're making liar loans and and all the other crap loans that were made. No, they, they were buying the safest stuff in the world. Right? And the shareholders and probably the bondholders there are zeroed out. But the most important thing is, and this is what the Fed did, or what they're trying to do, you must prevent 
a non-bullshit bank like First Republic from going under, right? Because if First Republic does, then PNC does, and PNC does, then USB does. All the regional banks have this impossible problem of being a bank. <laughs> you know, you borrow short and you lend long, and here you are buying the, you know, the safest stuff in the world, and you're going to get a bank run on that. So look, I look. The Fed has one job. One job is to provide emergency liquidity when markets seize up, and they did it. And good for them, right? Now that bought us some time, and we've got to figure out a way to prevent a world where we end up with four big banks in this country, and that's it. Because I promise you, every business, every high net worth person in the country was looking at moving their account away from a regional bank to one of the too-big-to-fail taxpayer-supported outfits. And that's just a sad world to live in, right, if that's the future. So this was a big deal. There was systemic risk. And it sucks that we had to support Silicon Valley Bank. It really does. But this is the job, and I'm really glad that the Fed did it. All right. That's it for me. <laughs> thank you, Ben. Benjamin, I saw you had your hand up earlier as well. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to sit on the panel. Appreciate it. Um, we're going to release a blog post later today on our website, 3dlfinancial.com, this notion of deposit beta and uh, appreciate it, the sort of renewed appreciation of liability management from a banking standpoint, we always look at things through an insurance lens, um, whether risk is being mispriced or properly priced from an investment standpoint, just like an insurer looks at their liability, their potential liabilities and whether premiums reflect that liability stream or not. And in the case of banking, I don't think with Silicon Valley and others, it was so much an asset management issue. It's more of a liability management issue. And the idea that 97% of your depositor base is uninsured, and in essence, you're providing banking services without an insurance premium associated or attached to that uninsured deposit base suggests this is more of a liability management issue than an asset one. And I think the implications for all this is that that, that risk needs to be recalibrated and, and priced properly from a depositor standpoint, this, I, this notion of depositor beta. And, and, and I think banks, um, whether on the banking side or on the depositor side, need to revisit how deposit coverage is going to be priced from an insurance coverage standpoint. Some of it can be backstopped by the government to participate, but in essence, we need to move away from this notion of a deposit limit up to a certain amount and then have it be uninsured after that. I think there needs to be an insurance framework set up for all depositors and for banks to think like insurance companies and say, you know, who is my depositor? Am I diversified from a depositor standpoint? How flighty or how, or how volatile is the cash flow stream of my depositor activity, of my merchant bankers? 
and 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 be able to properly price that and then pass along some of those costs to the depositors themselves there is no free lunch if you want to bank with us if you want to have payment processing services if you want to be able to take advantage of you know other um functions within the bank um then then that needs to be you know, properly reflected in the in 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 the pricing of those services that you're paying. I, I know that, you know, with with the large uh, money center banks, um, they're going to have much more pricing flexibility in terms of what they charge on merchant banking. So I wouldn't be surprised if merchant banking fees with Bank of America or J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo go up as a result of this. That, that's just my my perspective. Thank you, Benjamin. Now, before I kick over to the next question, does anybody on the panel have anything to say on what Last Bear, Ben, and Benjamin have said? Yeah, Nicholas, let me jump in there for a second, Miss Randy. I, I don't know how to raise my hand. I'm looking at this thing, so I apologize. No worries. Um, yeah. So what you know, what Ben and Benjamin are saying are, are really super accurate. And um, Benjamin used a term that a, a lot, I, I would bet a lot of people on here have no idea what that means, but that's called deposit beta. And I just want to make sure everybody understands what that is because it's extraordinarily important in this situation. And it goes to what Ben's saying is that there's still some serious exposure in banks that uh, we're going to have to pay attention to and that you know the officials are going to have to do something about. So deposit beta basically is that as the Fed ramps up rates dramatically, how fast do banks have to keep up with that? Okay, deposit rates. Now, clearly the beta has been extremely low, right? They've been, they're pretty used to moving slowly. They were able to keep, you know, their, uh, you know, deposit rates very, very uh, low for a period, you know, quite a period of time, maybe too long. But here's the problem is as time goes, people are starting to figure out obviously that, oh, wait a minute, I don't, uh, you know, I can make way more than my bank will pay me. I can go and get a treasury for 4% or I can get into a money market for 5% or whatever. And so those deposits are slowly leaking. Now, what I said earlier, and this is, you know, another person to follow who really, really gets it is uh, Richard Christopher Whalen on Twitter. I, I, I don't know what he, I think it's Chris Whalen. Anyway, totally gets it. They bought all these assets back in 20 and 21. They were forced to, right, at the lowest yields ever. And like I said, they got a ton of deposits. I mean, I would say most of my community banks doubled in size. And think about that. That's incredible growth. You know, where they might grow 5% a year, they doubled in size in two years. And all those assets had to be invested at the lowest rates ever. Well, you can't just get rid of those assets. And they have to be funded continuously into the future. And so what's happening right now is slowly but surely – these banks are having to pay up to maintain those assets because guess what? If they don't maintain the funding of those assets, they have to sell those assets and they're all at a huge loss. That's something that a lot of people just are not seeing. So all my banks are trying to figure out how do we fund those assets as cheaply as possible, but it's getting worse by the day. And if they don't keep up, deposits keep flowing out and, get, and that makes it worse. Because now they have to replace those that funding with expensive borrowings, so that's not going away. And I and, and I think Benjamin's right. I think we're going to alleviate, alleviate the panic mode here by saying all deposits are covered. You know, whether it be 
under 250 or over 250, which I'm not sure that's such a great idea. I think that's going to have its ramifications as well. But these are the right things to be looking at. And I want to keep taking people back to the fact that this is the perfect storm. Never in history have banks had to go through such a violent move in both rates and uh, growth of assets and refinancing in assets. And it's going to take time for those assets to reprice. That's something that we really need more than anything is we need time. Without time, we're going to have more big problems. And I'll leave it there. Thank you, Jim. I see your hand. Yeah, a couple of quick things. And I actually, unfortunately, gonna have to hop here in, in the next 10 minutes. But uh, so I'm going to take a couple of minutes. One important uh, element here for people to understand about the banking system and, and why things can seem very placid and all of a sudden get uh, pretty ugly uh, is uh, not just the amount of leverage underneath the hood. Everybody knows that. <clears throat> But there's this dynamic of held to maturity securities versus available for sale securities. Banks are allowed to mark uh, assets, uh, you know, 10-year treasuries, 30-year uh, you know, bonds, et cetera, uh, things with long duration, uh, potentially. If they're planning to hold them to uh, expiration, right, uh, hold them to maturity, they're allowed to mark them at held to maturity and, and not remark them and re dramatically reduce the volatility uh, that that uh, and the effects that that has on their um, their assets versus liabilities position. Um, if things get bad uh, and they have to access these held to maturity securities um, and uh, and start selling them, then it opens up the whole pool of assets that are quote unquote held to maturity of a certain type uh, to being remarked and revalued. Um, that is uh, the dynamic under the hood that that really kind of uh, became an issue here all of a sudden for some of these banks. So I would do want to highlight that and, and, and kind of mention that that's that's why there's a lag to some of these things. And, and honestly, that's why there's potentially a lot more out there that is not marked uh, to market that if things get ugly might have to be um, and why you can get kind of um, kind of uh, inter like contagion from from one to the other because it's actually under the hood already there. It's just not being marked to market. Uh, that's well, one, two. Oh, go ahead. Well, they are marked to market, okay? Every bank has to uh, mark to market their HCM portfolio and it's reported in the 10K. Every analyst knows exactly what loss, uh, well, let's call it an unrealized loss. Let's be sure that's what that is. Every analyst knows what every single bank's unrealized loss is. Uh, you know, you go look at uh, Silicon Bank's, Valley Bank's, uh, um, 10K, they they list in there, hey, this is the current value of our 90 billion, I believe. Its actual value is probably around 70 billion. So it, it's not like they're trying to hide it or anything. It's not, it's not what, HTM and AFS is kind of a silly thing. And it, it has more to do with uh, bank regulations. It has more to do with um, liquidity measurements and, and things that the regulators look at and whatnot. Um, it, it's part of what actually might've got uh, you know, Silicon Bank in trouble in that when you borrow from the home loan bank, the home loan bank right now anyway is one of the few few institutions that if you're going to borrow from them, they're going to look at your net tangible equity, which means they remove from your equity. They count the fact you got this unrealized loss there. And if you go under a certain threshold, they got to shut the door on you. And I don't know what happened with uh, Silicon and, and San Francisco. I think Joseph Wayne probably got it right in that 20% of San Francisco's 
uh, lending was to this one bank. And I think that maxed out and they had to stop. And they're like, we're done. That's it. Game over. I got 49, 50 billion in deposit outflow. I got to meet it. I can't borrow it anymore from the home loan bank. Well, crap. I got to sell my FS portfolio and then all hell breaks loose. So it is known, but you're absolutely right that as long as we avoid a situation where they're forced to sell that portfolio, we'll be fine because all those, those bonds will go to par. They will all go to par because they're all treasuries and agencies. So, yeah, absolutely, again, that's Randy, why I'm we not, need time. I, yeah, to be clear, I'm not saying this isn't an unknown thing, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, this is, uh, but it does affect uh, ratios, uh, you know, and regulatorily uh, can't right. uh, yeah, right. kick, kick in uh, to, to liquidity issues when, uh, you know, uh, you know, again, there's a reason why in, in 2009, uh, the Fed all of a sudden froze mark to market on, on a lot of assets. Um, well, that, that, but that was a credit yeah. issue, right? That that was Correct. bad loans. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that was bad. They were buying, you know, subprime backed, you know, garbage. This isn't that at all. There's no, all the, all the AF portfolios, it's all the HGM they're fine. Yeah. No, I, I, right. I agree. Yeah. They're, they're not the same thing, but mark to market does affect your ratios and whether you're solvent or not. Yes, it does. And that's, yeah. that's my point. Um, yeah. And so anyway, but just want to put that out there that that breaking point does matter, right? Everything's fine until it's not, right? Uh, and, and I think that's, that's the, the fact that that is a, a feature of, of the system, I think, is, is important. That's all I was trying to highlight. So, um, and then, uh, but point point taken this is not like uh in terms of knowledge it's not like a, it's an unknown thing i i would agree with that um lastly just because i i'm not going to have a lot more time to talk after this uh my expertise is obviously volatility and, and market dynamics um <clears throat> uh currently uh, we're in a march opex that is this friday i just want to highlight to people that uh you know if people are wondering okay you know we're not just talking big picture short term what you know what's going on should we be worried Yes, this is an incredibly kind of volatile, important moment. Uh, there is a lot of expiring contracts uh, tied to structured products, tied to uh, you know publicly traded products as well that expire this Friday morning. Um, uh, you know, this is ultimately uh, a, a kind of Russian roulette. You're kind of sitting here with CPI. You know, the the uh, the bullet is in the barrel. We don't know what's going to happen. And it's, uh, there's a lot of kind of Tinder out there. Now, uh, timing is everything, uh, you know, much like with uh, major events. And I've talked about this, when you have a lot of exposure, particularly downside tail exposure in markets, um, it cuts both ways. Um, if we don't get a, a particularly volatile, uh, you know, event, uh, there is buyback of stock sitting in, uh, in the wings uh, going into this Friday morning. Um, so as a very short-term dynamic, it's very important to understand that more than usual in these next several days, uh, there is a significant amount of Delta buyback should we not get a volatile um, move. Um, coming back, and, and, and people have heard me say the, the words Vana and Charm a million times, probably sick of it, but it, it you know that is sitting out there in the wings. That said, if you get something that can break uh, you know, a uh, hundred points plus this market, things could get ugly. I would also like to highlight uh, one more, you know, and those are gamma effects to the downside ultimately as you, as you drive through big positions. Um, uh, the other thing I'd like to highlight is, and this is, nobody's talking about this. I don't want to get too far into the hood of this, but there has been a significant drop off of margin protection 
uh, availability across the major equity products um, hey, in the United States. Jim, yeah. CPI just reported. Oh, go for it. Yep. So uh, February 0.4 month over month, med estimate core 0.5 month over month, above the estimate 0.4. Um, so core came in a bit higher than the estimate and headline came in in line. That's what's been released so far. So on, on balance, neutral, in my, given my point earlier, means decay. And decay means deltas come down, which means people have sucked the buck. So uh, on balance, uh, no news is good news. Um, for a market that has a priced in, you know, and a lot of uh, stuff on it. So be aware of that as you move forward here throughout the day. Um, the, uh, the last thing I said was very, I guess it's less relevant now, but there's much less uh, uh, unit availability, uh, margin availability than usual, not just because of the lack of liquidity and what's happened recently, but there have been a couple of things going on completely unrelated to the banking issue uh, where the, the OCC has, uh, been sued, uh, and again, nobody's really talking that much about this, by the, uh, by the SEC, a uh, small slap on the wrist, but what it's done is made them clamp down and relook at some of their risk. In the meantime, they're revaluing a certain entities who, are, who have been selling a lot of units in the market. Uh, long-term, that's probably good for reducing structural risk, but in the short-term, that has meant uh, a lot of people who, who expect those things to be coming to, to protect themselves against other shorts um, are a bit stuck. So just kind of inside baseball in the vol markets, uh, that has uh, kind of been an important dynamic that nobody's talked about. That I mean, said, I got to run. Thank you guys for having me. Good luck today. Thanks for coming, Jim. Always love having you here and getting your input. Ben, I see your hand up there. Yeah, look, I, I mean, if, if core is coming in hotter than expectations, I, I think this, this idea that the Fed is going to pause pivot i i I think that's um i I think that's wrong i'm telling you i think it's wrong i i think that 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 part of the purpose of the facility that was set up was to allow the fed to continue hiking rates and to keep them higher for longer uh, because it gives a facility for term loans for for the banks where that that's a problem now now look that doesn't that doesn't address the core problem here though right which is what you know Randy and and, and Benjamin were talked about which is that whether you call it de- deposit beta whatever you want to call it what what was proven with Silicon Valley Bank what we're seeing in real time with First Republic and Schwab and a lot of else is is that these deposits can and will move very quickly and they're going one direction right they're not they're they're all going to one of the gsibs because this is what i'm saying they have an unlimited deposit guarantee already now i look i, I agree we can't have unlimited deposit guarantees everywhere in every bank but man we can we can sure make Five million or something like that, which would be kind of the, the highest limit, I think, of kind of any sort of sweep account anyway. It's things like that that we've got to take care of in pretty short order, or else we're going to end up with a world where we've got three or four big giant banks. And that's a crappy world. So look, you know, we the the if if inflation's coming, if core's coming in hotter than expected. I, I don't see how the Fed 
preserves any credibility by pausing, much less pivoting. And I really do think that this bank term loan facility can provide some cover for the Fed actually to, yeah, to stay the course on rates and not tank the banks that do safe banking practices by buying treasuries and agencies. So anyway, that's that's my take on the data here. Well, that, that's exactly right, because, you know, this uh, funding program, which is historic, has never been done before in that. And I hope people can understand this, that all they're saying is very simply, hey, OK, let's create a situation where you don't have to sell your asset at 70 cents. You can come to us and borrow a full dollar. OK, so that's never been done before. It, that's a mismatched, you know, uh, uh, repo basically. And so they just, I, you know, Ben's totally right. Hey, now you can just come to us unlimited. I don't think there's, I know there's no limit on it. And, uh, and, and that prevents them from having to sell it, which is what we've been talking about. As long as they don't have to sell those assets, you know, they'll be okay and they'll move to par. And, and one other comment, I, Ben, I think it's really, really, really important to understand is we cannot have a world of three banks. I see a lot of people on Twitter going, maybe that's what we need to go to. It won't happen because I'll tell you why. Back in 08 and 09 and 10, all those big banks who were out there sucking money from everybody could around the country, they just started shutting down their branches. So I had, you know, small community banks. When I say small, you know, a billion dollars. So it's, it's small when you look at the GSIBs, but still a big institution. They would open up a branch in a town for no other reason that they had no branches. And literally that would, you know, out of, I don't want to say the goodness of their heart, but true to community banking, true to a George Bay world, they wanted to make sure there was a branch in that town so people could get to the branch. It, you know, not everybody is super, you know, on their phone and can do every, all their banking on their phone. So I, I see that as an impossibility. And, and if they went that direction, it would, it would really be bad for rural america well not just rural america but i, 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 <laughs> I that yes not just rural america and rural america you're absolutely right randy i mean it's a it's a it's a it's a terrible world but that's clearly the equilibrium that we have now and i'm promising you every high net worth every small to medium enterprise is looking at their that is currently regionally banked is making plans let's just put it that way they're looking at these alternatives and i asked like all my accounts yesterday what is your plans for this the rest of the year into next year growth uh stay the same or shrink and one out of 50 said we're, we're looking to grow more everybody else was either mostly just stabilized because really that's all they can do they can't they, they can't shrink because they can't sell any assets they're stuck so they have to just continue to find the funding that whatever way they can. And some of them are going to, you know, going to shrink. And, 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 you know, this is something Lacey Hunt's talked about with ODL, other deposit liabilities, where he kind of segmented from M2. I don't, we haven't talked about that, but, you know, you know, money supply is coming down year over year. I mean, it's shrinking. You know, that's going to have a ramification. I, we've only done that a couple of times in the history of the country. And it wasn't for a long period of time. It was kind of 
33, 38, as you'd expect, and one or two other times. That, you know, if deposits keep shrinking and keep leaving, it's not, you know, it's not just they're going to JP Morgan, but it's also that they're going into treasuries. They're going into money markets. You know, they're going, they're getting the fungibility of these, you know, the money is leaving. You know, I'm, I'm looking at this going, can they avoid deflation at some point? That, that's my, my curiosity once they get this thing turned around. Thank you, guys. Really good discussion there. So I want to move over here to Last Bear. Uh, a lot of people have debated the idea that this is not a bailout, the reaction to the banking situation. First thing, uh, Last Bear, before we dive into that, do you have any thoughts on the CPI that just reported? And then we'll kick over to this idea of the bailout. Yeah, I think on, on CPI, obviously it doesn't help the Fed's situation that it came in slightly hotter than expected on core. Obviously, 0.5% annualized is a bit over 6% uh, core inflation. So that's, that's, that's not good for the Fed. It makes their job much harder, particularly now as they're balancing um, considerations on, on the banking sector and how much further they can push rates. Although I do, I do tend to agree um, with someone earlier who said that um, 25 bips um, still could easily be on the table. I think that particularly given the new lending facility that was supposed to address basically um, the issue of the securities held in, in banks' portfolios, um, plus, you know, this continued strong inflation print um, this week, I think that they will continue on with, with that sort of path. Um, but I do also, um, I, I think that it's interesting, uh, you know, we talk about interest rates rising, and obviously, um, most of the impact of, of rising interest rates happened back in 2020 when they were doing 50 or 75 basis point hikes and incremental 25 basis points doesn't move the needle to an extreme degree relative to what's happened over the past year um, with in terms of the effect on the market value of those securities. Um, and I think that they have credibility to sort of stand up, um, you know, that they, that they need to protect. Um, but at the same time, you know, we don't talk about quantitative tightening hardly ever when we have these discussions. Um, and I think that's going to be somewhere um, that's going to come into more into focus as as they have concerns around liquidity in the banking sector. This is something that I've talked about for well over a year, but the declining cash balances in the, in the banking sector um, and the the impact of the reverse repo facility, the amount of money that continues to be parked in the reverse repo facility rather than on the bank balance sheets. Um, and so I think that's something that's that's a big question that the Fed's going to have to address more so even than than raising rates, because, you know, people say like, oh, the, there's money that's flowing into out of the banking sector and into treasuries. I mean, that doesn't make sense. Uh, like treasuries don't hold money. Um, you can buy treasuries from somebody else. You can buy treasuries from the government, which ultimately spends it back to, into the banks. But buying treasuries by itself does not reduce banking sector liquidity. Um, it just moves it around a little bit. Um, but what does reduce banking sector liquidity is the reverse repo facility, um, which, you know, sends money basically back to the Fed where it sits and doesn't sort of circulate and provide liquidity to the banking sector. So it's kind of a, a number of different points, but I just wanted to raise um, all those and then I'll, I'll shut up. Thank you, Last Bear. We'll get a little bit more into this idea of a bailout here in a moment, but real quick, Michael, glad to finally get you up here. I don't know why we had so many problems with those invites, but do you have any comments on what's happening or what people have said so far that you've been able to catch? 
<laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks to Unusual Wills for uh, kicking me in the ass to actually wake up early for a change. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, anyways, so yeah, I've, I've been listening for a while. It's been hard to get in, get in as a speaker, but um, I just wanted to say, so I think I, I think the biggest problem that plagued the early days of 2008 was inconsistent policy and the powers that be uh, arbitrarily choosing winners and losers. So if you remember, even a week before Lehman failed, um, the the uh, Fed and Treasury basically put uh, uh, Fannie and Freddie into conservatorship, had very inconsistent treatment uh, 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 with different parts of the capital stack. That obviously had repercussions. And then, you know, you had you had um, these choice, these inexplicable choices, like, for instance, saving countrywide when they then shut down WAMU and then saving Wachovia. And so so I think that uh, really, really exacerbated the crisis of uh, confidence. Um, what I see in this BTFP facility, however, repugnant to me that that it actually uh, this this notion of unlimited depositor insurance is kind of repugnant to me because I think at the end of the day, um, whoever was talking about, I think it was Benjamin who was talking about this is a matter of, of liability mismanagement. I, it, it, it's really both, right? Because held to maturity losses don't matter unless there is a uh, forcing function. The forcing function uh, here is a run on the bank. And why is there a run on the bank? Because this bank specifically chose to bank huge whales, no offense, <laughs> um, and and did not diversify their depositor base. But there's also culpability on the depositor side, right? Because if you're a depositor, you are an unsecured creditor to the bank. And so would you lend any money to anybody without doing any due diligence on the underlying bank? So, so while I... Um, appreciate the need to ring fence and 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 as Ben Hunt said earlier, you have to you have to ring fence this thing and not allow it to let not allow the contagion to spread to more responsible banks. Um, uh, so I think they successfully did that actually here, and I'm going to credit uh, Fed guy uh, for for saying this once upon a time. But the the powers that be now have the tools to essentially supply liquidity, but at a restrictive price. And so to me, um, I tweeted out yesterday, I, I kind of view this facility as almost a controlled burn for, for uh, irresponsible banks um, that allows, you know, allows small fires, uh, at least for the shareholders, uh, but doesn't allow the fire to spread out of control. And I just tweeted out this morning, I said, look, there are many, many who think uh, many asset classes that are pricing uh, the possibility that the Fed is going to uh, do a complete about face and essentially undo uh, what they've been trying to do for the last 15 months, which is tamp down inflation. And they really think that this uh, this SIVB situation it has caused the Fed to come to that trade off point between hiking versus not hiking. Well, I think the surgical nature of this BTFP just eliminated that trade-off, um, and it's been my base case that, you know, uh, unless we had a total collapsing CPI, 
I think the Fed, this is not going to dissuade the Fed from its, uh, its continued mission. And I, I look to the playbook, for instance, of what the BOE did last, uh, last year, right? When the BOE was facing the guilt crisis, um, it did, uh, it went, went in, supported guilts temporarily, but they continued, to, they continued to hike. And mind you, they continued to hike despite having a much, much weaker domestic economy than the U.S. is facing right now, right? The, U, the U.K., even though they're, they're still sporting 10% uh, uh, CPI, uh, is already straddling 0% GDP growth. So you think that this situation uh, is going to make the Fed do a complete about face? So this is this is where I, I just think that um, I, I made another comment yesterday in a space saying that what's what's really confusing to market participants, I think, is the state of supply inelasticity across multiple asset categories, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's equities because of the nature of passive, whether it's oil and commodities, whether it's uh, bonds and the dollar. So when you have a state of inelastic supply, it means that very small changes in demand can create very large moves. And so just kind of be careful and conflating those large moves necessarily with, with, uh, you know, a real regime change. I think it's a very, very fragile market, very tricky. But at the end of the day, uh, the big picture to me um, is that, you know, the, the indicators for inflation not only do not seem to be slowing down in many cases, they seem to be reaccelerating. And now that they have, uh, they have ring-fenced this situation with a controlled burn, it's not going to stop them from continuing on their mission. So my two cents. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Jim Carroll, see, we've got you up here as well. Do you have any comments based on anything people have said so far before we move on to the next question? Uh, not really, Nicholas. I uh, was happy to listen in. I think Jim covered the volatility uh, landscape. I, I would just say that Thursday and Friday uh, showed me at least that uh, VIX might have been sleeping, but it's not broken. Thank you, Jim. Really glad to have you here as well. Thanks for coming up on short notice. So, Jim, real quick, uh, what are your thoughts on movings yesterday on volatility? Well, you know, all of the buzz is about zero DTE options, short dated options. And uh, there have been a number of people commenting, uh, Tier 1 Alpha, Chris Sidiol, uh Jim, um, about this ramp up. And I think what we saw with the Silicon Valley Bank news breaking um, and really catching a lot of people flat-footed was that zero DTE options uh, provide very limited protection if that's what you're using them for. And, uh, you know, at the peak on Friday, um, we had, you know, a, a very significant spike in the VIX and, um, you know, it was it was definitely something that people were uh, were not accustomed to seeing. Um, I think the other thing that that we've been looking at uh, it, it, in in assessing the impact of this short dated option activity 
uh, which which all does happen outside of the calculation of VIX, um, is that it does appear to be showing up in VIX 9D, the nine-day VIX calculation. And I think the concern that a number of people have in the space is that it's a, a, a tail, if you will. Um, and, and I think what <clears throat> this banking crisis has shown us is that uh, when that tail needs to be wagged, uh, it can ripple through the system in ways that are larger than people might be expecting. So, you know, we're, we're watching very carefully to see how this whole situation plays out, whether it can be tamped down, um, because, you know, there there is reflexivity in the system, and uh, people who have migrated to the short-dated options may ultimately migrate out to longer tenors, and uh, that'll certainly have an impact on the blame for this quote-unquote bank run. Others have also said that this was the first Twitter-induced bank run. So, Randy, is the Fed really responsible for this due to their policy? Well, I think so. I mean, I, I again, I, that's what I explained at the beginning, which I don't think a lot of people understand um, because they're not in it like I am. But, you know, you had, like I said, they put their foot on the scale to an unprecedented level and forced, you know, everybody's like, oh, you know, if they just hedged it, it would have been fine. It just doesn't work that way on a bank balance sheet. And the types of bonds, like, say, mortgages and stuff, virtually impossible to effectively hedge. So they created the exposure. And, and, you know, again, two years of investing, and most of those two years, you have to assume they're going to keep rates like that for a really long time, which means you got to buy longer duration if you want to get any yield at all. And because of what they were doing with mortgage prices, it forced them into lower coupon uh, MBS, which meant once they started raising rates, the durations essentially doubled, which means that's your asset beta. That means your assets are going to reprice a lot slower because you're not getting any cash flow back. And so, it, you know, it, did they need to do that? I, don't, I personally don't think so. All I can tell you is back in March 2020, when uh, mortgage prices were coming down, for whatever reason, somebody somewhere was selling. My accounts had a ton of money. And my accounts were buying all they could get their hands on. Why did the Fed have to save the day? I don't know. So I'll open this to the panel as well if the Fed created this exposure. I know, uh, Michael, you had a recent tweet on this as well. So if you have any comments there, Michael, let's go to you and then we'll kick over to Ben Hunt. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I have a different take on that. I, I, I basically said, look, to, to blame this on the Fed is like blaming Hannibal Lecter's crimes on the lack of vegan options on the menu. Um, you know, I, I, I really think that, uh, yes, the Fed uh, bears responsibility for, for keeping uh, QE for way too long. Um, on the other hand, um, they have been telegraphing uh, what they intend to do for the better part of a year now, if not 15 months now, right? Um, this bank but, but, but can I jump in real quick? Can I, can I, can I challenge you on sure. that real quick, if you don't mind? Sure. Okay, so that's fine. But this was three years ago. 
Okay, so they had no clue. Remember transitory? And that's, that was a message for quite some time. So they, they're stuck with all these assets and it doesn't matter what their message was over the last year, 15 months. They're stuck with them and there's not a lot they can do. That, that, that's, you know what I mean? I, it, it was, it's too late to, then they did it so fast. There was no way to adjust. And, and to market all, uh, not all banks made those choices, right? Um, not all banks chose to, to reach for an extra 40 bips um, and then reclassify as held, as held to maturity and lock themselves in the way that this bank did. Not all banks. It, they're not. It's okay. HTM's not locked in. <clears throat> so that's what nobody understands. You can get rid of HTM any time you please. You just lose the ability to define anything as HTM again for a certain period of time. I don't know what it is, measured in years. But no one gets in trouble for selling an HTM bond. It's just that all your HTM bonds now are AFS. And yes, that affects ratios and things like that. But it's not going to flow through to income. It's not going to uh, uh, paralyze a bank for doing that. Uh, so, you know, and, and, and yeah, should they have been buying 30-year? Uh, probably not. You know, but they did. You know, a lot of them did. A lot of them didn't. But remember, the five well, years well, that's, is below that's, 1%. But that, but that, yes, but that's, but that's exactly it, right? I mean, like what, you know, if you're running a business and you know, uh, if you're in, a, in the banking business and you basically know that, you know, the, how, how much lower can rates go at 1%? And yeah. why would you, you know what I mean? Like it's, well, it's just that, that, get, part, that part doesn't make sense to me. Well, it just doesn't. But remember, I, mean, I think this is. This was one and a half percent. A lot of those 30 year paper, that was the environment. It was, it was so low that to get any kind of spread, they had to do something, you know, and, and, and now maybe they could have gone with 15 year, 20 year. And, and a lot of my accounts did, but all my accounts, every single one, were absolutely forced to lengthen duration to some degree in order to get any kind of spread whatsoever. Otherwise, well, if you're, but, but again, okay. So if you're going to do, do that, income? if you're going to do that, then I would make sure that you have a shit ton of granular, small deposits, right? A hundred percent. I mean, yes. right. So, so, yes. so you can't, you just simply, I don't think you can say that this is all the Fed's fault. This was terrible, terrible risk management on both sides of the balance sheet. Terrible. Yeah, I, 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 I hear you. I, I disagree. <laughs> you know, it, again, on the community bank side, it's like, you know, Silicon and Signature, they're the first show to show up because what you just said is correct. You know, 95% of their deposits were uninsured. So we now clearly see that that, that could be a serious issue. Although this new program, kind of solves that problem, doesn't it? <laughs> now they can just borrow the money yeah. and pay, give depositors their money. And I can, yeah, and, and the concern, of course, is the potential moral hazard from there. But again, uh, to my, to my uh, comment earlier, quoting uh, uh, Joseph Wang, is that, you know, it's not like this is a complete free lunch either, right? I kind of think the controlled burn analogy is, is one. I love Greek mythology references. I basically said, look, this is, if you're going to be that bank to accept the pomegranate seeds, uh, you might never leave Hades. So, so you know, be careful what you choose here. Yeah, but at the same time, I, you know, I've been going through percentage of uninsured. There's not a lot that are in the 90s. You know, it, there's a lot of 40s, 50s, 60s. So, you know, and I think I forget, I think it was Ben Hunt said, you know, 
there's a lot of this. You, you can't operate a company with 250,000 or less in a bank. You know, you've got to have more than that. So, but I like your comment is like, absolutely. The point of this is like a depositor over that threshold should have a vested interest in how this bank is being run. And, you know, I'm going to make sure that I don't get into a situation where there's a, a bank run. And I'm not sure anybody in Sil- you know, Silicon Valley could have seen that, but now they know. Yeah, totally. I totally agree with that. That was a beautiful back and forth, guys. Thank you for that. So I do want to get some other panelists' opinions here as well. Ben and Last Bear, I see your hands up. Let's go Ben, then Last Bear here. Yeah, look, guys, I, I mean, it's all true. <laughs> that was, I, yeah, Hemingway's famous quote about religion. No, it's, it's all true. Yes, of, of, of course the, the, the Fed made this happen by you know, hiking up interest rates so quickly after, as Randy's saying, really forcing all banks, not just, not just Silicon Valley Bank, but all banks to buy duration at the lowest rate on duration that you're ever going to see in our lifetimes. And Mike's, of course he's correct, right? Silicon Valley Bank, it was, there were a lot of practices there that were bullshit, right? And it's all true. And so my point is, well, so what? Now what? Because right now, the issue we have is that the regional banking system in the United States is a broken teacup. You can glue it back together like the Fed tried to do, and I think it was a really good program they announced. You can glue it back together, but it's still a broken teacup. And what I mean by a broken teacup is you've got, what what are the deposits? So you've got, I don't know, let's call it six to eight trillion in regional banking system, right? And I think something like 40 to 50% of that is in uninsured deposit amounts, all right, that's $3 trillion plus that as soon as your local bank says, oh, gee, we're, we're thinking about raising equity, they are out of there. They're out of there. It, it's an impossible situation when you've got trillions of dollars that the entire regional banking system depends on that will be moving if there's even a whiff of a problem. Because what you can't accept as an uninsured depositor is a haircut. You just can't take it. And why should you when we've got money center banks that have a taxpayer guarantee that cannot fail, that cannot go into receivership, so you move your money over there? Right? That's That's the broken teacup problem that the Fed has now got to solve. I thought the policy was fantastic to try to prevent now good banks from going under after a arguably bad bank did or two did. But now we've got to fix this broken teacup. And I'm not quite sure how you do it. I broke a teacup just yesterday, and I'm still kind of bummed about it. It was my favorite one. Last Bear, I see your hand. Love to hear your input here as well. Yeah, I I would just say, I mean, there's something like 3,000 smaller banks that that aren't GCIBs, and there's one one of them, I guess three of them that that have failed. But Silicon Valley Bank, 
was unique on both sides of the balance sheet, as, as Michael was pointing out. And I do think that Fed policy overall has certainly exacerbated this problem and caused um, you know, unrealized losses across every single bank's balance sheet for the reasons that everyone's talking about. But there was only one bank that wiped out their entire equity capital position um, through, you know, because of that, and that was Silicon Valley Bank. And that has to do with mismanagement on both sides of the balance sheet. Um, and I don't think <clears throat> that it's necessarily, you're talking about, yes, there's uninsured, depo uninsured deposits at all banks, but Silicon Valley was the most uninsured by far. Um, and they had the most security exposure by far. So it's not, it's easy to generalize across, but I, I don't, I think you need to acknowledge those differences and the, the management, mismanagement, both on the part of the, the bank, but also on the part, of, the part of depositors who were holding excessive cash balances, who had a highly concentrated depositor base, where they all got on the phone with each other and created a bank run and then say that this is sort of a systemic problem. I think that's a little bit of a leap. Thank you, Lasper. Benjamin, I'd love to get your input here as well, if the Fed is to blame or on what any other panelist has said. Uh, both. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the Fed, um, you know, basically uh, adopted this messaging of lead by example. And the, the Fed's own balance sheet is wrong sized in, in asset liability. But fortunately for them, losses only mean no remittance to Treasury. And um, but the, the real world implications are obviously what we see with uh, many of the banks that are upside down on their asset liability. And and so I think, you know, guys like Professor Plum, Michael Green and others have made very strong arguments that that the Fed sort of own, you know, don't don't um, look at what I look at what I do in addition to what I say. Basically, it meant that it kind of gave this sort of false sense of security that rate volatility would be basically suppressed, um, and 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 so it's it's just a matter of 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 whether you truly want to blame the Fed because you know from from a bank um, risk manager standpoint, well, I was just following their lead. And, um, but on the other hand, like I said, I think this took the attention away from the uh, liability management side of things. And it, it led, uh, in hindsight, it, it should have meant that risk officers should have been, been very, at the very least, more cognizant of the nature of their liability stream. And in this case, the Silicon Valley, which I do think represents an extreme example with their 97% uninsured depositor base and the nature of their VC driven enterprises. Um, is that their their liability base was more volatile. Uh, there was more deposit beta or potential deposit beta, not just you know deposits looking for higher yields, uh, which is what other banks are are facing at the moment. But the fact is is that they had a higher cash burn rate among their own customer base, and um, and then to you know add on um, to 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 uh, add on injury to or insult to injury. Um, you had a organized deposit run uh, from last week and and where 42 billion tried to leave the door. So it's I, I think, you know, there there are aspects to to blame kind of on, on both sides. But but ultimately, banks had to make a decision as to whether they were going to sacrifice profitability or not um, in, in for the for the sake of uh, ring fencing 
um, their depositor base or, or at least sort of building up reserves in recognition of, um, you know, potential um, AFS losses uh, flowing through. And, and some like KeyCore did, you know, where they basically brought down their net interest margin uh, projections and the stock got hit. But you're not reading about a bank run or deposit or flight on, on a bank like KeyCore. So it's, I think what, what I read was, is that, that this, this has been re-fenced. The, the, the bigger issue with the bank stocks, banking sector, is that buybacks and dividends have been basically put on hold and the banking sector is now put into a new penalty box for probably the next two to three years um, and, until their asset liability mismatch gets right-sized. And, um, uh, but, but I think for the time being, at least the, the, most of the fires hopefully have been, have been put out, um, and that the backstops and put in place by, uh, uh, regulators, uh, will be sufficient without having to get Congress involved. Uh, God forbid us if we have to, you know, go to Congress to pass legislation for another TARP or to raise the depositor insurance amount. Um, but you know, it's, it's just a matter of, of, if, if, if you are looking to borrow or looking to do uh, banking services and so forth, um, part of it is cost and then part of it is relationship. And, um, and, and right now, at, at the least, it looks like the cost is going to go up, but lending is still, um, is still made available. I'm looking at you know, credit default swaps this morning on, on investment grades and high yield. They're, they're coming down from, from the... Uh, sell off from yesterday and so forth. So, you know, regardless of where interest rates are, regardless of where credit spreads are, as long as credit is still available, credit is still considered cheap. And I don't kind of see a systemic risk developing here uh, until the lending window truly gets shut down, and the and the health of the banking sector is is really called into question. What I think the bigger issues are facing down the road that have yet to be fully recognized are the weaknesses in commercial real estate. Um, it is starting to show up both on the private lending side uh, as well as across uh, certain regional banks, particularly those focused in New York, for instance. Um, but so far, it looks like it's contained. You know, I hate to use Ben Bernanke's uh, curse word um, from the great financial crisis, but, but it hasn't really spilled over yet into the broader borrowing uh, side of things. Um, the other thing to keep an eye on, of course, are rising auto and credit card delinquencies. Um, Bloomberg did report yesterday that repos are up, auto delinquency, uh, auto loan delinquencies are up as well. They're, you know, they're, they're clearly showing weakness there. Um, but, but banks at least have been issued any kind of major warnings on the, on the, on the loan book side of things. Um, from from a credit quality standpoint, so so we'll see if this if this weakness truly sort of spreads and in, into the broader market right now. But just as you know, we saw with the inflation report this morning, um, it continues to remain elevated, and and until the Fed really runs us into a brick wall, um, it kind of just feels like there. This is this is an episode. That uh, the regional banking episode that that will pass, um, and um, but the Fed just means that they're probably going to proceed more cautiously. We'll likely see a 25 basis point rate hike in March. May is the big question mark. Probably they're going to pause. I would say after March, given what's being priced into Fed funds futures, 
Uh, and it's just kind of more wait and see what the transmission mechanism is for all the tightening that we've seen so far. And, and hopefully, you know, no other landmines get triggered at this point. If, if Thank I you, could, Ben. Yeah, go can, ahead. can I just inject one thought into the conversation, which is, you know, just try, trying to put myself in the shoes of the Fed, right? I have to think that, look, what is the trade-off here? What is the real trade-off? Um, and, and, you know, when I consider that inflation is the most pernicious, most repressive tax of all that affects 100% of people, uh, I have to think that there's got to be a very, very serious trade-off for me to uh, emasculate the credibility that I've been trying to build over the last 15 months in getting inflation down. This is not that trade-off. This is not anything close to 2008, not even close. So, so I think, I think my, my read on this BTFP situation was that you know, even even though it was repugnant to many who called it a bailout, it's not a true bailout. It's certainly not a bailout for the investors of uh, of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature. Um, so they they had to draw the line somewhere. They did, and they made it consistent. And I think that's a direct learning from the the uh, you know the haphazard you know. Uh, policies in early in the early part of uh, the fall of 2008 what that really really dented confidence confidence and caused the you know the the crisis to spread like wildfire thank you michael so i i do want to dive a little bit more into the btfp the bank term funding program and we have a really good question from the audience from sundered seas is the one-year time frame for the BTFP sufficient for the slow burn to play out, considering a lot of the paper is 30 years? So I want to kick that to Randy, and then I'd love to hear the rest of the panel's thoughts here. Yeah, one year is no problem as long as it goes zero bound again inside that time period. Because <laughs> meaning all asset prices would go back up, and they would all be worth par or more, and everything would be fine. So that's a silly premise. That's probably not going to happen. That one year, there's no way that's enough time. You know, you've got durations of six years, seven years, eight years, nine years, 10 years in some of these portfolios in the United States. And so, no, that's going to definitely get extended. And, 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 it, and it's an extraordinary program. It's, a, it, you know, we talk about a brick wall. We did hit the brick wall last week. You know, we found out. And now, again, yeah, it was the most stressed banks that saw the problem. But this facility is a result of deposits hitting a brick wall. And the fact that we are now effectively insuring all deposits, insured or uninsured, is an extraordinary, unbelievable effort. That can't go, you can't minimize that. It's an an amazing effort. So, you know, and one last thing before I go, let's, you know, on the duration part or on this, uh, oh, they, they went too long duration. Again, Silicon just sold their AFS portfolio, $20 billion, with a 3.5-year average life, I think it was, that had a 179 yield. That was a very conservative portfolio, and they took a 10% loss on that. They took a $2 billion loss on that. It isn't just that they all these people bought 30-year, 40-year mortgages. 15-year, 10-year, 20 it doesn't matter. Everything's at a loss. So – the number one thing here they had to do is you cannot have a bank run. And, you know, 
that's it. End of story. As long as you get, you don't have any bank runs, we should be okay. And we should be able to feed our, you know, work our will, our way out of this. All right, Ben, I see your hand up and then we'll kick over to closing thoughts. I know some of you guys got to run. So go ahead, Ben. Yeah, look, it's, it's a, it's a one year program because it's a, it's a liquidity program, right? To, to Randy's point, the, the idea here is to buy a year to try to take the pressure off these regional banks that have deposit flight problems. That's it, right? It's, it's, it's not trying to solve the problem of, you know, duration for these guys. That's it. The other thing to point out is that the this is a program, the term loan announcement. That's a program. Insuring all depositors at the banks that failed, that's not a program, right? That's an announcement. That's a precedent. Those are that's that's something they're doing, but that but that's not a program. What I really think is happening is they wanted to stop the immediate bleeding and now buy time to prevent the run on the regional banks. God, let's hope they do. <laughs> and buy some time to come up with, well, what is the longer term program for insuring deposits? That's what I hope comes out of this. And right now that's a hope, but at least we've got that hope after the actions this weekend. Thank you, Ben. So I'm going to move right along the line here for any closing thoughts y'all might have. And feel free to plug anything you're working on before we send people on their way into market open here. So let's start with Last Bear here. Any closing thoughts? Anything you got to plug? Um, no, I just would say thanks again for having me on uh, the panel. It's always a great discussion. Um, you guys can follow me on Twitter and subscribe to my Substack if you want to read more about what I have to say. But thanks, guys. Thank you, Last Bear. Michael, anything to add here before we send folks on their way and anything you've got coming out you want to plug? Uh, thanks, similarly, for uh, making me wake up early. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I guess the only thing I'll uh, point out is I, I have a pinned tweet that, that I wrote uh, last weekend uh, saying that I think the, the real ticking time bomb globally is not this provincial situation we have with Silicon Valley Bank. It's actually China. So take a look if you're interested. I think China is actually the most indebted country in the world, uh, given its really, really complex inner, uh, you know, web of SOEs and LGFVs. I mean, those off-balance vehicles make Enron look like child's play. So have a look if you're interested. Definitely check that out, folks. Thank you, Michael. Jim, once again, thanks for coming on such short notice for that input on volatility. Do you have anything to add on what's been discussed so far and anything to plug? Uh, nothing to plug, just the old military adage, keep your head on a swivel. Sound advice always, I'd say. Thank you, Jim. Randy, do you have any closing thoughts here? Anything you want to plug? Uh, no, well, no, not really, but everybody was great. Everybody, I think in the end, we all agree, you know, with one thing or another, and it, it was really good communication, and I learned some things here too, which I appreciate. I will be on with Joseph Wayne might keep an eye on my Twitter or his Twitter. And I think we're going to have a much deeper discussion about community banking and kind of dive in more deep to the things I've been talking about. But thanks for having me. It was awesome. Thanks for coming. Your input here was really good. A lot of really good discussions there. Benjamin, anything you want to add on what the panel said so far? Anything you want to plug? Hi, sorry about that. Yeah. No worries. Uh, hold on a moment. 
So, uh, sorry about that. Um, we, like I said, we're going to be coming out with a blog piece later today, uh, our own take on the whole banking situation and, and kind of coming out from a standpoint that we just feel like, uh, again, adopting this insurance framework that, that there shouldn't be a free lunch in, um, in as far as providing risk, uh, risk protection. Every, every, every sort of covered risk needs to have a premium cost associated with that. And I think this whole episode just reveals that uncovered deposits in our sort of in, imply some level of needed protection and who bears the cost of the protection is up for debate, but there needs to be a cost. It just can't be asymmetric one-sided. The depositors can't feel like that they can run a cost-free un, un, uninsured um, business without you know, implicit protection either being provided by the bank uh, the deposit insurance corporation or the uh, or the federal government, and at the same time, banks need to be more mindful that you know the, if if they are not earning or or being compensated for taking on risks uh, from their depositor base, then then they need to be compensated for taking on those risks. They need to somehow uh, uh, get coverage for that, so that just like with an insurance, you know, an insurance company isn't going to p- provide sort of free insurance coverage above and beyond a certain amount that they're committed to. And, and likewise, I think banks need to sort of reassess how it is that they're going to be charging for their services, given the underlying risks. Thank you so much, Benjamin. And thank you to all of our panelists today for sharing their expertise. Uh, if you're not following all these folks or subscribe to their newsletters or Substacks, please do so. They'll be pushing a lot of information out as always, uh, as things unfold here. So thank you again all for coming. If you came in late, this was recorded and will also be released as an Unusual Whales podcast on Spotify, Apple Pod, and YouTube. Uh, As far as Unusual Whales spaces, we'll have another one of these macro spaces for FOMC. Thanks again, everybody, for coming. Be on the lookout for that FOMC space and follow everybody up here for more information as things unfold. Have a great rest of your day, folks.